0: back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for joining me. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host Louis Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with my people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Listen, if you've been enjoying Studs, If you learned something, if you've taken some solace in our conversations, then let me give you a chance to give back. Head over to patreon.com slash studs and see what rewards you can reap for supporting my little podcast here. No pressure, but for as little as a couple bucks a month, you can help me keep this thing going strong. One special person out there keeping this stud's vision alive is Johannes Zorn of Berlin, Germany. Thank you, Johannes, for being a loving friend and a patron of the pod. I'm grateful for your support, and I hope that you love this episode with Julie Stewart as much as I do. Julie is an assistant United States attorney. We talk about how and why she pivoted from high-pressure commercial litigation in prestigious private law firms to her dream job, pursuing truth, justice, and the American way. She discusses how, as an immigrant to the United States, her faith in the U.S. legal system empowers her to fight tenaciously to protect society from fraudsters and from violent criminals. Julie's a fighter with a sterling, if sometimes a bit quirky, work ethic. And she's got a heart of gold. You'll see. So please enjoy my conversation with Julie Stewart, a bona fide truth seeker. Julie Stewart, welcome to Studs. Thank you so much for making time for me. I'm excited that you're here. You are an Assistant United States Attorney. How do you describe what you do?
1: I am. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this and to talking to you. It's nice to catch up. Um, what do I do? I guess the simple answer is as an assistant United States attorney, I investigate and prosecute violations of federal criminal law.
0: And how long have you been doing this?
1: About two and a half years now. We, uh, My husband and I moved up to Milwaukee from Chicago to take these jobs um, in September of 2018.
0: These are challenging but coveted jobs. Can you briefly at least walk me along your path to the U.S. Attorney's Office?
1: Yeah, Is a... Uh- is a long one, but the goal was sort of always tightened up here. So it it feels great to have finally arrived, so to speak. But um, so shortly after meeting you first in high school sociology class, I went to GW for undergrad and studied political science with an eye toward being an attorney. Um, thought for a while that I want to go into politics, and uh, D.C. quickly it disabused me of that notion, uh-huh. very quickly. And so I took the LSAT and ended up at Cornell Law in upstate New York in Ithaca which is gorgeous, by the way, if you've seen the t-shirt.
0: I hear. It's lovely. Autumn. Autumn in Ithaca.
1: Yes. Autumn in Ithaca is really, really nice and a really fantastic place to go to law school because there's just enough to do that you don't lose your mind, but not enough to do that you're distracted from the study of law. So graduated from Cornell and went to a big firm in Chicago, Kirkland and Ellis, the biggest firm in Chicago, and toiled away there for a while. I clerked on the Second Circuit with a judge in Geneseo, New York, so back to upstate. Really just a fantastic experience, and uh, moved back to Chicago, went to a different law firm, spent five years there, and then ultimately it was time to give it a shot. And so applied here to the jobs in Milwaukee and surprisingly and thankfully got them. And here we are.
0: What was the ambition to become an assistant United States attorney? Like, why do you want this job? I'd imagine that, you know, it's, probably more lucrative in the private sector.
1: Yeah, you certainly don't take a job in the government uh, for the money, that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, I was making a lot more uh, in the private sector, I think, you know, orders of magnitude more. Uh, So that was a big give. And I think a lot of people who leave the private sector in law for U.S. attorneys' jobs often do it, Earlier in their career than I did. 10 years out is a pretty long time to get used to private practice trappings. Some people plan to go back to private practice, and I don't. This is the dream job. And why is it the dream job? I think it goes back to, you know, as you know, my family immigrated here from the Soviet Union when I was four years old. And I grew up with a, a lot of stories about how a country devoid of the rule of law made for a pretty miserable experience for its people. That the level of corruption and fraud and just graft being the only way to survive made it difficult uh, to have a good, you know, good life, strong life, um, at least for my family. And that was a big reason why my parents and grandparents immigrated here to the States You know, I sort of grew up with this idea of America being a place where the rule of law really mattered, where justice mattered, you know, truth, justice, and the American way, as corny as that sounds, that was very much part of my upbringing. And as I learned more about the legal system in America, and as I decided to be a lawyer, I kind of saw the rule of law as being vindicated the most by the Justice Department and by the assistant United States attorneys who practice there. That culminated for me when I was in law school as a first year. I interned for a district court judge in the federal court in Chicago, and I saw the AUSAs appear before him. They seemed to take to heart this idea that they were not there to win not there to prevail or put people in jail or you know get a particular result but they were really seeking the truth and that to me is just more fun and more righteous than a lot of the work that i was doing in private practice
0: have you always had a profound sense of justice
1: I like to say I have. I mean, I have a sense I've always wanted to. I've always wanted that to be a part of my life, wanted to live in a way that pursued justice, uh, fairness, uh, the rules of that's always mattered to me, you know? And so I certainly strive for that in my everyday life. I don't know that everyone always achieves it, but that's the goal.
0: On a day-to-day basis... How much does that pure pursuit of justice motivate you to do your work?
1: I think a lot. And I think it has to because, you know, in my private practice world, the goals were different. The purpose of representing a client is to get the client the best result. And maybe that result is consistent with all the facts and all the law. But maybe it's not. But your job isn't necessarily to do what is most legal, what is most correct under all the precedent. Your job is to obtain the best result for your client that you can. And the Justice Department mission is the opposite. You really are trying to seek the truth. You really are trying to achieve a fair result, trying to enforce the law but also doing so in a fair way. And I think about that on all my cases and sort of try to consider not only, you know, the defendants and the crimes that have been alleged or committed, but also the victims of those crimes and the community in which they've occurred.
0: With all of that in mind, despite the fiscal loss that your family suffered from your transition, Was it a relief of sorts to get out of private practice and into pursuing the public good?
1: Yeah, it was a relief. It's also much more fun. I mean, you know. Is it? Yeah, this job is way more fun than private practice. I mean, just day to day, right? I have far more control over my daily schedule. Being an associate at a law firm is perhaps one of the most miserable ways to spend your time you know you've got the partner as your boss you've got the client as your boss at least at the firms i was at it wasn't unusual at the big ones to get calls at midnight to be working on a saturday to be out with your family and you know have a client call you and you have to stop what you're doing and advise the client particularly when there's something emergent happening And then you're not in court very often either in private practice. Most cases, civil cases that I was working on, they settle. And those are good results for your clients, and clients are happy when cases settle. But I've always liked the oral aspects of being a lawyer, you know, the oral arguments, the persuasive factor, being in front of a jury. Those are all fun things that you really don't get to do as a private practice attorney so it was a relief to seek the private good it was also a relief to be able to you know have a bit more control over my day-to-day and it's just it this job is just more fun and you get to be in the thick of things and you get to investigate you get to bring the cases you want to bring that you think are worthy cases you don't have to just take what you get because the client is paying you right
0: right Well, let's get into the day-to-day a little bit then. Before we do, can I just say I'm so happy to hear that you're having fun at your job. That's really heartening to me. So there, I said it. Let's dive into the day-to-day. How does a workday begin as an Assistant United States Attorney?
1: Well, it just depends on what case I'm working on and what, you know, what needs to be done. A lot of my job is investigating cases, looking into allegations of criminal violations. And so I spend a lot of time talking to federal agents at various agencies, whether that's FBI or DEA, um, IRS, you know, the Postal Service has an uh, investigative arm. Um, Health and Human Services has an investigate a criminal investigative arm, and so I spend a lot of my time interfacing with agents from all the various federal agencies about cases and determining whether there's enough of an allegation to open the case. And once there is, talking to the agents about the ways that we can pursue the investigation—you know, different tactics we can take to figure out what's really going on, whether there's you know, a there there, whether that this is a, someone that does appear to be violating the law, and how we can figure out what they're doing and why they're doing it. And so I spend quite a bit of my time talking to agents about that, uh, figuring out what kind of evidence we can subpoena or witnesses that we can interview. Sometimes I'll spend my day interviewing people, you know, sometimes that's people who are involved in the criminal activity or people who are adjacent to the criminal activity to try to figure out what's going on there to determine whether there are witnesses who will ultimately testify at trial. Some days I spend the day in court appearances. If I have a lot of cases that I've already charged, then, you know, we have initial appearances and statuses and Um, Sometimes I spend, you know, the day presenting case for indictment to the grand jury and presenting witnesses to the grand jury proposing charges. Sometimes I have appeals, and so I'll be preparing an appellate court brief or arguing to the Seventh Circuit. So those are more rare, but I'll spend some time doing that. So how a day begins sort of depends on what I'm working on.
0: I want to talk about all of that stuff, <laughs> and I guess maybe we could start from the beginning. What types of cases have you prosecuted during your time as an assistant U.S. attorney?
1: So I've done a whole host of things. Uh, one of the nice things about our office is we're not required to only specialize in one type of one type of law. You know, I find it in private practice, and this was always a tension for me, in private practice they want you to specialize they want you to become an expert in you know something specific maybe even an industry you know medical malpractice or real estate or you know commercial litigation related to tech industries you know something really specific and i always get bored (laughs) And Once I've sort of learned how a particular industry operates, or you know, done a case or two in a in you know in an insurance firm litigation, I, I don't really care anymore. And so it's hard; <laughs> to, it's hard to uh, stay motivated. And so one of the nice things about this job is you learn about a bunch of different things, and you don't have to only focus on one thing. So I'm technically the uh, criminal health care fraud coordinator in our office, which means I spend a fair bit of my time doing criminal health care fraud cases. Those cases involve typically you know, medical professionals or people adjacent to the medical profession who are engaging in some sort of fraud or criminal activity that can include you know, false billings to Medicare and Medicaid. That can include claiming that you're helping patients and seeing patients when you're not and you're just billing the money. Nursing home fraud, elder care fraud, all of that is sort of subsumed into that healthcare fraud arena. I've done a fair number of what we call pill mill cases. Those are doctors who overprescribe opioids, typically for cash. So yeah they they claim to be a doctor but really you walk in and you give them 300 bucks and they give you a prescription for oxy or fentanyl or morphine or whatever other horrible drug you know that is extremely dangerous and leads to a whole host of other issues so I've done a fair number of those cases but i've also done a lot of you know violent crime carjackings armed robberies some victim cases, so that would be like human trafficking or uh, child pornography or child child abuse type cases. And then, you know, there's also general fraud, um, IRS, tax evasion, that kind of thing. So I've probably, I mean, it's only been two years, I've covered a lot. Yeah,
0: it sounds like it. It sounds like that could be really liberating to have such a broad swath of Different types of cases with which to engage. Is it is it liberating or is it just stressful? Because you have to continue to learn.
1: It's it's stressful, but in a good way. Yeah, I think stress gets a bad rap, to be
0: honest. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, I'm with you. Uh,
1: I find yeah. that stress often is a good motivator, and if you're not if you're not busy, at least me. If I'm not busy, if I'm not stressed, if I'm not kind of worried about something. I get real bored and I stop paying attention. So, I think it helps to be stressed. I think it's liberating. I also think it's interesting. You know, you get to deal with a lot of different people, you get to learn a lot of different things. You know, criminals are always finding new ways to commit crime, and so staying on top of that and figuring out what they're doing and why is is fun, you know? I get to play detective even though You know, there are actual detectives who are actually better at that than me. (laughs) (laughs) Though I did once catch a carjacker on Facebook. So I got to say, pretty good detective.
0: Some top-notch detective (laughs) work there, Stuart. So you had mentioned this, and I'm really curious about how you go about it. You were talking about researching and investigating and building a case. You've had a couple years at the... U.S. Attorney's Office, and you had many more years as an attorney before that, you've built an approach to researching and building a case. How would you describe your approach to that part of your work? How do you research and build the case?
1: I try to be careful and meticulous in planning and figuring out on the front end sort of what I'm looking for so that I'm not chasing my tail. But at the same time, you know, different in private practice where you have a client who's told you the story and you're basically trying to build a case around that story for the most part. In criminal law, you're really trying to find the truth. And I'm always mindful of the burden of that and the import of that, right? This is, my cases impact someone's life. So making a mistake and charging someone who is innocent is a huge deal to me and I think to everyone who does this job it's the last thing you want and so you sort of have to take a skeptical eye to every allegation you know violent crime cases often come from local police officers in the area and those are a lot I, I would say not easier but a lot more straightforward so you have a case of an armed robbery. You typically have these days surveillance videos, or you have eyewitnesses, or you have someone you know caught in the act, or you have forensic evidence like DNA and fingerprints. And so in terms of investigation, you sort of track down those avenues of things to make sure you got the right person and you have the right time period and you know exactly what happened you gather that evidence in conjunction with the local law enforcement officers and you sort of figure that out build your case present that to the grand jury on other investigations you might only have an allegation you might have you know a medicaid billing that seems out of whack with patterns you might have a patient of a doctor file a complaint with a medical board or with the Drug Enforcement Administration. So you just have these little things to go on and you have to dig deeper to see if there's a there there, you know, what's this doctor doing and what's this healthcare facility doing or are there other witnesses. And you sort of have to break it down into its smallest parts and, and track it down to make sure you're on the right track. You know, at least for me, every step of the way, you got to question what the motivations are of, complainant, you got to view all of that with a skeptical eye because we're really in the business of proving things beyond a reasonable doubt. And so I have to have doubt myself every step of that way.
0: You had mentioned that part of what you have to do to research and build a case is to interview people. I'm sort of new to this interviewing thing per this podcast. What have you learned about interviewing people
1: I have a long way to go to learn I, I've seen some people in my office who are remarkable at it and I think the skill that they possess that I am still working on significantly is making people feel at ease you know making people feel comfortable I tend to just be like so tell me tell me (laughs) what do you have to say here's what i've got what do you have you know and i i cut to the chase and that's not always the best way to make someone sitting in a prosecutor's office with you know often an fbi agent or dea agent is a pretty serious thing one thing that i'm working on is to make people feel more more comfortable in having that conversation uh start small but i think interviewing is listening you know and having that skepticism so you can ask follow-up questions and sometimes the most difficult thing is not thinking about what you're going to ask next so that you can really hear what the person is actually saying rather than formulating your next thought
0: do you go into an interview tending to trust or mistrust the person on the other side of the table from you
1: I guess that depends on who's on the other side of the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Touche. Um,
1: you know, it really just depends on what else I know. I think one thing that's true in my case is maybe in all federal criminal practices, we typically don't ask questions we don't already know the answers to. Huh. That seems kind of silly, but if you're confronting someone who you think is has committed a crime or is involved with someone who committed a crime, you're not doing that blind. And oftentimes it's it's a way to confirm what you know. It's a way to see if someone's ready to take responsibility for their actions. Sometimes it's fact-finding if it's just a witness. But I think in all cases, you have to have a healthy dose of skepticism if you go in trusting Everything everyone says to you that doesn't make for a very good ferreting out of
0: <laughs> worst, worst attorney ever.
1: Uh, yeah,
0: Julie, do you take it personally when people who you're interviewing look you straight in the eye and lie to you? No. Is that hard to not take it personally?
1: No, it's the nature of the beast, right? Everyone's got their own reasons for doing what they do and saying what they say and, you know, sort of is what it is. I kind of expect people to lie and sometimes they do and sometimes they tell the truth and sometimes it's a shade of shade of the truth. But, you know, it's it's not personal. It's how the world is.
0: Do you get lied to all the time? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds really frustrating.
1: Yeah, I guess. But I mean, like, it's not about what people say. It's about what they do and how they act. And, you know, in some ways it makes it all the more interesting to sort of figure it out, right? It's a puzzle. You know, lying only gets you into more trouble. Uh, When I'm interviewing people... When they have lawyers, they often don't lie. You know, it's a federal crime to lie to a federal agent. No one has to talk to me. So if you're coming in voluntarily to do it, it doesn't behoove you to commit additional crimes in the process.
0: You know what just dawned on me?
1: You probably have a badge, Do you have a badge? (laughs) I do not have a badge. I have a credential. You don't have a badge? (laughs) I know. They should give me one. When I did catch that carjacker, the, the officer told me that I should have an honorary badge, but he never gave one to me.
0: You know, I'm not so much in the business of rewarding people for suffering through this podcast, but I think I'm not I think I might just send you a badge.
1: Be careful that you're not causing me to impersonate a federal officer though, because that's also a crime <laughs> that I prosecuted. My
0: image of you is totally blown. I also don't
1: carry a gun.
0: Yeah, well that that's good news. <laughs> I don't know if I want you <laughs> carrying a gun.
1: <laughs> I probably wouldn't want me to carry a gun either. Yeah. So
0: so you get lied to a bunch, but maybe maybe that's all part of the game and you don't take it personally anyway. Let's dive back into some nuts and bolts stuff because I really am interested in some of like the specifics of the work. I don't really have a sense of what an assistant United States attorney does on a daily basis in terms of like what proportion of their workday is spent doing a b c or d so like you gotta do your researching you gotta talk to your colleagues you're in trial x percent of the time so can you just sort of parcel out for me the different tasks that you have to toggle through and about what proportion of your time is spent on each
1: Yeah, that's a hard question because it it varies so widely but it's you know investigations probably and and Again, I should preface this and all my answers. Maybe we should do like a preface to the entire interview that the views expressed here are my own. And I'm only talking about my own work and not the Justice Department or the United States Attorney's Office. Um, so, what, what I do is I probably spend 50% of my time uh, investigating. And that can be anything from, you know, issuing subpoenas to, reviewing records in response to those subpoenas, interviewing people, figuring out next steps, what else we could do to investigate an allegation of a criminal offense. I probably spend 25% of my time doing sort of legal research and writing, and that's reading up on precedent to respond to motions and responding to the motions. So drafting responses to things like motions to suppress evidence or you know, motions to dismiss an indictment, things like that. That takes us, I think, uh, bad at math. 75. 75%. <laughs> I probably spend maybe the rest of the time, 15 to 25% of the time, either in front of the grand jury or in court, whether that's arguing sentencings, Appearing for initial pleas. So when someone gets charged with a crime, they typically appear for an initial arraignment and plea, uh, negotiating plea agreements, or then trying cases or arguing at sentencing hearings for what the ultimate sentence should be.
0: So let's talk about that last part there. I'm really curious about what goes into the plea bargain process. Let's imagine a scenario where y- y- you have a perpetrator who uh, stands accused. They're highly likely to be found guilty for one reason or another. It could be ego. It could be foolishness. It could be that they're being misguided by their attorney. They don't want to plea. What goes into developing a reasonable plea What does that conversation sound like? What kind of work goes into making that happen well? And what happens when it all goes cattywampus and the wheels fall off the bus?
1: Well, I want to start by saying I'm never never in a position to offer a plea to someone who I'm only reasonably certain has committed a crime. I don't charge cases unless I am certain, beyond a reasonable doubt, that the person has committed the crime I'm charging them with. But uh, once, once that indictment has sort of been issued and we proceed in the case, you know, there's always a question of whether someone wants to proceed to trial, which is their constitutional right. And uh, if they want to, they absolutely should. But there's often, you know, a benefit to people to take responsibility and to plead guilty. On the federal system, there's something called the federal sentencing guidelines, and that's uh, issued by Congress, and they have, you know, a table with offense levels that are determined, you know, it's a number, and based on the criminal conduct that you're charged with or the statute that you're charged with, there's a guideline range and a penalty range of prison time. There's also ranges for things like restitution amounts that you pay to your victims, forfeiture considerations. And so that's pretty laid out there. And that's generally my starting point if I'm thinking about you know what to do with a case. I start with the guidelines. I'm, at that point, pretty well-versed in the facts and the law. I consider other similar cases similar conduct and what the sentences generally have been there. I consider the victims of the case if it's a victim case and oftentimes you know there's a, there's certain rights that victims have and so we have to follow those to inform and consult victims about any potential resolution of cases. Also considering the defendant's circumstances and the acceptance of responsibility All of that comes into play in determining, you know, what is a reasonable offer. And then it's really up to the defendant and their attorney to determine whether it makes sense to, you know, accept that and move on or to take a case to trial.
0: Have you ever been in a situation where you were hoping someone would plea and you felt reasonably confident that they would plea and they didn't? And you ended up having to go to trial.
1: Uh, no, I don't, I don't view trial as sort of like a loss, if that makes sense, or I'm never hoping someone takes a plea. I'm hoping that, you know, we make, we as in a society, you know, make the right calls. And so, you know, I take my responsibility for building a case seriously for, Vindicating the interests of justice and and the law seriously, and I bring charges against people that I have evidence that have committed a crime, and it's it's someone's absolute constitutional right under you know the United States Constitution to take their case to trial and to force me the government to meet the burden of proof to prove that they are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and to convince a jury of their peers of that uh, unanimously you know you have to get all the people on the jury to agree that the person committed a crime and that's that is their unambiguous constitutional right and so i'm never i'm never particularly hopeful that someone will take a plea or won't take a plea it's more that, you know, particularly in victim cases, I worry about the re-victimization that occurs when victims have to testify in trial or prepare to testify in trial. And that can mm-hmm. be significant. Yes, um, And that's always in the back of my mind. Sometimes the victims certainly hope that someone takes a plea. And I guess in that circumstance, I too hope that they do to save the victim's additional victimization. But beyond that, you know, it's it's your right to have a trial, and if that's if that's what you want and you believe that you're innocent, or even if you just want to put the government to its proof, that's your right to do it.
0: So let's say there's either no plea bargain offered or no plea bargain accepted, and you're going to trial. Fully aware of the stakes at hand. How do you feel on the first day of a trial?
1: Uh, nervous. And then that's like showtime, right? Because you're in front of 12 people and a judge and someone's life is riding on the line and there are victims who are counting on you to vindicate their rights and there's a society that's counting on you to vindicate their right to live in a safe world by the time I've gotten to trial like I said there's evidence that this person has committed the crime and it's up to me to lay those facts out for the jury and it's up to the jury to decide so there's certainly it's certainly a weighty situation Um, it's nerve-wracking because all eyes are on you and you don't want to screw it up you have to Know the rules and the facts and be prepared for the inevitable curveballs that you'll get. um, And you have to present it. But putting aside sort of the weightiness of it um, and the importance of it, it's also fun, right? That's That's the persuasion. That's the standing up in court, having 12 people listen to what you say, and, you know, trying to persuade them. It's fun.
0: Can you talk more about that? Tell me what's fun about it.
1: It's fun to make arguments verbally. It's fun to try to convince people. It's it's a performance, probably similar to how actors feel when they're um, on screen or this is the game, right? When you're... Uh, football player and you practice and then you go out on the field, that's the game. So trials, the game.
0: So Julie actors and football players tend to have something of a pre game ritual. Do you?
1: Does obsession count? <laughs> 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 Obsessing over every exhibit or Piece of evidence or brief that you filed or video that you're presenting, objection that might be made, rule of evidence that might be raised. Uh,
0: You are meticulous. Does that count? It, It counts for something. It's not quite like listening to Eye of the Tiger or eating the same donut from the same shop before trial begins.
1: Nothing like that, although I was known in a private practice, one of my clients, by having uh, memorized where every document in like 3,000 document database was and being able to pull that up in, in a second. So, obsession.
0: So, when you're sitting at the table, the courtroom has who, you know, it might be packed, there might be a few people in there, there's a jury and you're waiting for the judge to walk into the room before everybody rises. Do you do anything to settle yourself, to calm yourself, to encourage yourself, to inspire yourself, to be fully prepared to let the show begin?
1: Remind myself to breathe. Um, you know, I I just try to remind myself that I've done the work, and I know the case, and I know the stakes, and my job is just to present that to people in a way that they will understand. And so, you know, super nervous before I get started. Probably the worst part is sort of that waiting for that first opening statement. Yeah. But then you start talking, and it flows, and you know what you're doing. Depends on the layout of the courtroom. You know, as, as someone who's four nine, I can't stand the lectern. You know, you can see like the tip of my nose over that that thing. And so, uh, if I'm in a place where the acoustics are good, and I don't have to stand behind that, then I'm feeling pretty good. And once you get started, you're good.
0: Are there attorneys, defense attorneys, who walk in? That you've seen before that you're either like, oh, this schlub, well, that just made (laughs) life easier. Or to the contrary, are there some really savvy defense attorneys out there where you're like, oh, all right. Going to have to gear up a little extra for this one.
1: You know, some people's strengths, you know, some people's weaknesses. I frankly find it to be better and easier to go against the best defense attorneys than to go against ones who, you know, sort of seem to be maybe not as good or busy. It's just, it's better to know, particularly in in this job, in private practice, maybe less so, but in this job, I want the defendant to have a good lawyer. And for the most part, they do. You know, the defense bar, they care about their clients. They're doing the best they can. Sometimes they just have a shit case. And that sucks. You know, their client is guilty. But everyone's doing the best they can. So I hope, that they're, I hope that they're good and they're prepared. And it's better that way for everyone, for the system, for the defendant, for me.
0: I have strong but mixed feelings, as I suppose you do, about the nature of our legal system and it being an adversarial system like you. I want even the most guilty people to have access to the best defense. We prize the pugilistic nature of our adversarial legal system. But this makes you, indeed, an adversary. And I wonder what it feels like, and please forgive me if I'm asking you about your feelings, but I know... You're going to answer it however you want to anyway, because that's what you're trained to do. <laughs> but I I wonder what it feels like to work in such an adversarial environment.
1: It's interesting that you say that, because I don't feel it's adversarial. I mean, it's an adversarial system. You're, you know, arguing different sides of things. But the goal is... Truth-finding. I'm not fighting. I'm not, like, in the wrestling match ring with someone, like, duking it out. It's adversarial. I'm making my case, but I'm, you know, I'm doing a job, and the defense attorney's doing a job, and, you know, the system, I think, for the most part, works. Now, that's said as someone who's on one side of the V, and people on the other side of the V. Might disagree.
0: So you tend to have faith in the system, then I have to. You have to
1: have to. If I didn't have faith in the system, then what would I be doing here?
0: That's in the nature of the work. You have to, as an assistant United States attorney, you just have to have faith in the system.
1: Well, I don't know if you have to as as a United States as an assistant United States attorney. Maybe other people. I don't know what other people think, but. I do because I don't know how I would do this job if I didn't have faith that the system worked and was intended to work. Is, is it perfect? No, of course it's not perfect. And there are certainly issues, you know, there are probably issues with the way laws are written. We are at bottom, a society of laws. We elect our representatives. They make decisions and if they make bad decisions, they're voted out of office. Um, you know, human error certainly exists on both sides of the equation. For myself personally, I have to faith that I am not committing that human error, and that I'm vindicating the law as it's as it's written, because that's what makes societies work.
0: So then, you don't really have too many real concerns about injustices that seem to be, according to some critics at least, an inherent part of the system. I mean, it sounds to me like what you just said was kind of like rinsing your hands of it, right? Like, democracy works, the citizens get what they deserve, they vote for people, and the bad people get voted out, which I think we both know isn't true.
1: (laughs) We Um, hope it's true.
0: We hope it's true, but Hope alone doesn't get us too far, maybe in this particular facet of the conversation. And so I don't want to push too hard on this, but I do do wonder, and I can't help but wonder, if sometimes you find yourself working for a system which, while it aspires to justice, doesn't always achieve it, both in process and in outcome
1: didn't mean to imply the system is perfect or that there aren't things that happen that are unfair or unfortunate. In my view, that doesn't mean the whole system is broken. Certainly, there are problems and things that need to be changed, and there are things to strive for. For myself, I make decisions that I think vindicate justice and truth. And I strive for that in my own personal uh, work. And, you know, my cases are community-based, right? So a lot of that, a lot of what you're talking about is sort of system-wide. Day-to-day, though, you know, I'm prosecuting a person who has billed Medicaid for millions of dollars of care to people that needed it. That they didn't get, or a person who burned down his girlfriend's apartment after beating the crap out of her, you know, robbed a store at gunpoint, terrorizing the clerk, or a human trafficker who victimized multitudes of women who didn't have anywhere else to go who got them addicted to drugs or who beat them if they didn't have sex for money that they gave to him. Right. Day to day, that's, that's what I'm dealing with. And so are there problems in the broader world? Sure. But in my day to day, am I seeing that kind of systemic problem in the justice system in my cases? Uh, No, you know, I'm, I'm trying to vindicate the safety of a community and the goals of the justice system, which is to protect, to punish, and deter.
0: Thank you for that response. That was really pitch perfect. And I want to put a pin in something that you said, and I hope you don't mind my asking because maybe it's a little personal. You deal with people who try to fleece the Medicaid or Medicare system. They're committing really antisocial acts. They're victimizing people. You're even more so dealing with people who commit arson, human trafficking, carjacking, sex offenses. Um, I don't knowingly have to deal with people who commit these types of crimes. And I don't know how I would um, sort of grapple with my thoughts and feelings and my emotional boundaries if I had to. How do you grapple with drawing some emotional boundaries around some of the more uh, vexing and ethically challenging cases you have to deal with. I know you have kids at home and you certainly don't want to bring your work home. So can you talk about how, if at all, you can leave work at work and the impact it has on your non-work life?
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's not easy. You sort of learn as you go to try to not think too much about these things when you get home. But it's hard because my heart does go out to a lot of the victims of the crimes that I see. And it's it's really hard to put that aside. So I have a six-year-old. And then some of these crimes are against little ones. And that's tough to imagine, you know. I think about how people do things to the most vulnerable portions of our society. It's, it's not an answer to your question. There's not a great, you know, there's not a great separation. You do what you can and... Try your best at work and try your best at home, but uh, balance in any sense of the word everywhere is hard, right? Balance is hard when you're working at a law firm and you're working ninety hours a week, and when you want to come, when you come home, and the last thing you want to do is talk to any human being, you just want to crash. But your <laughs> two-year-old yeah. wants to, you know, show you the drawing they made at school. You put on a happy face, you drink a cup of coffee, and you. Uh, You look at the drawing, right? Balance is a myth. You can't have it all.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I'm on team imbalance. But I do want to press into it a little bit. And again, I hope you don't mind. I wonder if you find yourself livid at, or to the contrary, somehow empathic towards perpetrators of violent crimes particularly perhaps violent sex crimes how if at all do you keep your feelings out of it so as to maintain level-headedness so that you could do your best work
1: both sometimes I'm livid sometimes I'm livid at people who do unspeakable things you know and there's a lot of things that go into someone's circumstance i think that we have to remember that you know no one grows up in a vacuum and people face difficulties and those difficulties sometimes cause people to do things that they really shouldn't do and so i'm angry at the society that created that and i'm angry at the person who's doing that to someone else i feel for the victims sometimes you know you feel for the perpetrators when there's some basis in their history that caused them you know maybe it was done to them sometimes that's true sometimes that's not the people who were abused abuse you kind of get the facts you get and you have to take yourself out of it right because it's not about me it's about my job and my job is to uh, investigate and prosecute crime and to do so fairly and justly Frankly, I often find myself most livid at white collar criminals who don't have some of the difficulties that some violent criminals do, right? If you are a a doctor, for example, and you've gone to medical school and you've, by all accounts, had a pretty decent opportunity, you've taken a Hippocratic Oath, but you choose instead to favor your pocketbook over doing the right thing for your patients. That pisses me off a lot. Yeah. Um, there's not really a good excuse for that. Fraud is not a victimless crime.
0: Do you conscientiously harness that anger? I mean, you you, you said you get livid. With some of these criminals, particularly white-collar criminals, and I'm I'm with you. Does that anger motivate you in a substantial way?
1: At trial, I harness some righteous indignation, for sure. Because it's important to sort of tell the jury the story, and they have to feel it, right? If you're the government and you don't seem to care one way or the other then why should they pay attention or listen to what you have to say? So I certainly, you know, definitely harness that righteous indignation when arguing a case to a jury an opening and closing argument. I think that's important. And I think that makes for a successful trial lawyer, you know, relaying how devastating a crime has been to its victims is important in making that argument. The time not to harness that is during investigation and charging because that's the time when you're seeking out the truth. It's only after you sort of know what happened and why. There are times when that persuasiveness matters to doing the job. How do
0: you amp yourself up to express your moral sense of righteous indignation at trial? You got to show up and perform How do you do that consistently?
1: By the time you get to trial, you've been preparing for that trial for weeks and you've been thinking about nothing else. But that trial, you've been living, breathing that case for for weeks. And so you're in it. So it's not that hard to then stay in it when you're making the case to a group of people. That's just what lawyers do. So actually, I find that to be pretty easy to do, ramp yourself up for the for the hearing or the game, you know, the trial, whatever it is, even just an evidentiary hearing. When you know the case and the case is going to some sort of hearing and you're, you know, there on deck and standing up in front of people and making your case, you have to seem like you care. Luckily I care. So it's not that hard to seem like you care.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever lost a tough one?
1: I've lost some tough motions. Yeah, it happens. You lose. Is it hard? Yeah, losing sucks. (laughs) (laughs) No one likes to lose. You know, I will say in my job, I'm very careful on the front end to charge cases that I think are worthwhile cases and where the person is, is guilty. So in the federal system, you have the luxury of time And smaller dockets, and that's why I think if you look at the statistics of conviction rates in the federal system, they're extremely high. It's because the cases that are brought are generally worthwhile, and the guilt is beyond a reasonable doubt. But people make mistakes. Human error happens. Officers make mistakes. And that is a shitty feeling. And uh, it happens, right? We're all human. And it sucks. It's hard to get past.
0: Yeah. Is it hard not to vilify defendants who do unspeakable things?
1: No. I don't know. It's just not that personal to me. It's personal to the victims. I don't know. There's not not a lot of evil people in the world, I think. There are some. I think most people do bad things, but they're not bad people. And I think you have to maintain some humanity. Someone did something terrible, and society, a society of laws, demands that they be punished or they be separated from society and that they be deterred from doing it again, but doesn't make them a bad person forever.
0: Is it that type of wisdom and empathy? that's required to do the job expertly
1: it is for me personally i think it'd be hard to do if you think everyone is horrible and it can't be rehabilitated so it's required for me i think most people have some sense of empathy maybe that's my inner optimist showing
0: (laughs) as we know One of the functions of the prison system is to punish, and you have spoken on a couple occasions of vindication. How do you escape the temptation to be vindictive?
1: I don't have a temptation to be vindictive and to punish. I don't know. I don't view my role that way, I guess. I'm not the one meeting out the sentences. I'm not the judge. I didn't write the guidelines or the laws it's my job to present the facts. Um, so there's just a lot of factors that go into it, but I don't, I don't view it as vindictiveness. And particularly in the case of crimes with victims, I view my job as giving them a voice, right? They get to provide statements on how this impacted, how the crime impacted them. They can speak at sentencing. They can submit victim impact statements to let the court and society know it's not really about the defendant. It's about the victims.
0: This might be a, a little bit of a stretch, but you and I are both familiar with justice systems in other parts of the world. And I want to zoom in kind of quickly on the justice system in the Soviet Union. And for that matter, very sadly, in Putin's Russia today. You've very hearteningly achieved your dream job. You are a truth seeker, as you put it, and I find that really inspiring and encouraging. And I wonder if you feel so empowered to do this work as expertly as you do it, and you can commit yourself to it in such a full throttled way. Because you feel empowered to negotiate a system where there is rule of law. And so you can prosecute these cases as, as diligently, almost like as voraciously as you can, because you have faith that the system allows you to do it. And that that sort of u- unique... yes. And so you can really just go at it as hard as you want to because you trust that the system has boundaries that will protect everyone involved.
1: Yes, wholeheartedly, yes. I mean, yeah, totally. I, you know, that's not true in lots of places, but uh, we have a constitution and we have an independent justice department those factors were significant in my desire to take this job, you know, innocent until proven guilty. It's not, it's not a cliche. It's true. And it's important. And it's not something that other places even give lip service to. I think America does more than give lip service to that. You know, some people might think that's naive. Um, Some people might look at it and point to all the problems that, you know, the world experiences and even this country experiences. And I'm not suggesting that there aren't, you know, that there aren't problems in the world. But we at least have the right to try. That matters.
0: It does matter. Are you proud to work for the United States government?
1: I'm proud to do the job I do and I'm proud to be a citizen of the United States and I think the United States holds a promise. You know, not not for everybody and not all the time and it's not perfect, but this country fulfilled that promise for me and my family. You know, and my mom not said 30 years ago, screw this, um, I'm applying for a visa yeah. and then sat in jail for four days with no one knowing where she was because of it. And if she hadn't been willing to have the courage of her convictions to do that for me, to move from there to here with not, you know, a word of English and $20 in her pocket and for me to end up at Cornell Law and then as an assistant United States Attorney. I mean, that's a that's a big deal that this country can deliver that. So yeah, I'm proud to I'm proud to stand up in court and say Julie Stewart on behalf of the United States of America. I think that phrase has power and meaning and I just hope I do it justice.
0: I know that you do. And I know how proud your parents are and must be and if I can say I'm wicked proud of you. And it would mean a lot to me if you would help us drive this train into the station by sharing with me the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure. Let's start with the failure so we could end on yet another note of triumph.
1: All right. So, failing sucks. (laughs) <laughs> Losing sucks. <laughs> so reliving those failures also sucks. I think career-wise, I'd point to as a failure, my failure to make partner at the law firm I was working at in Chicago before I took this job. You know, partner sort of the prize. The joke is it's a pie eating contest where the prize is more pie. So <laughs> one might question why I wanted prize to begin with you know I don't know working the 80 hours a week wasn't enough I wanted the 100 so partnership track at these big and medium-sized firms in the city is typically eight to ten years and I was in my eighth year I had met my billables I think I had done a fairly good job of demonstrating a prowess to develop clients I had had two babies. No, I had had one baby. Um, I'd come back from maternity leave after just three months and billed in that year the same number of hours that I was billing before taking three months off. Um, (laughs) And I was pregnant with my second. And partner sat me down, and I had some great mentors at the firm. Really liked it there. Had some good clients that I liked but partner Sammy Don said, You know, you're not going to make it this year. You're probably going to make it next year. And frankly, you know, it was a blow to the ego. And I had worked really damn hard for that. Um, and it was disappointing and it was a failure. And I'm not sure that I ever got much of an explanation other than, you know, sometimes finances of the firm come into play and sometimes office politics come into play. And, you know, frankly, sometimes gender comes into play, too, to some extent. It's a male-dominated profession. There aren't a lot of female partners. But for whatever reason, they said next year. um, And I said, yeah, not waiting around. I didn't really want this job to begin with. I've been doing it for 10 years, but I never wanted to stay in private practice for my whole career. And I don't really want to be ouch, with clients at the bar at 6 p.m. You know, I want to be doing my work or I want to be home with my kids. And so a failure, yes, and a disappointing one, but one that sort of made me reevaluate what I was doing in the first place Yeah, in a way that brought me here.
0: It sounds like it was a blessing in disguise. It also sounds like it's their loss. Now, give me some triumph.
1: Yeah, well, we spent a lot of time talking about my time in government, but I think the most triumphant experience I had as a lawyer also comes from private practice. Although I I did catch that carjacker Facebook (laughs) sleuthing. So, I mean, that was pretty (laughs) triumphant.
0: Facebook being the epitome of all things justice.
1: But putting that uh, sleuthing triumph to the side, I had a case when I was in private practice for a client. It was a company, but it was a family-owned business, and the business really meant just a lot to this family. And they were facing a litigation that was probably more personal, you know, to them because of the way they ran the business than you would anticipate from, you know, a corporation versus a corporation. And there was a lot of feelings involved and you know typically law is not a feelings oriented place law and facts you know just the facts (laughs) ma'am there wasn't a lot of people willing to be receptive to sort of how they felt about the litigation and what it meant to them and how personal it truly was and how angry they you know in this case I thought rightfully were about things and so I formed a pretty close bond with this person and really heard them out, really felt like we developed an understanding. And although they were advised, I think, a lot of times by other people that I worked with and colleagues to settle the case, and that might have been, you know, smart from a financial perspective, it was obvious that this person just wanted to be heard and wanted to have their day in court, so to speak. And being able to form that connection with them and feel like I could really understand where they were coming from, hear them out, and sort of vindicate that for them and support them in doing that, presenting the case. And the case ultimately did go to a trial of sorts and the client got to testify and that was a really hard experience i don't know um you've probably never been deposed or testified yeah no. um it's not easy right you're, you're on the hot seat and it's hard to not have your words twisted by people whose job it is to twist people's words and it's hard to be up there telling your story in this very formal question and answer way that people are not used to talking and so i spent weeks preparing this client and you know just hours and hours talking through what it would be like and and you know feelings were such a big part of it and when someone has very personal feelings at stake and they want to be heard you can't just rush through it and by the end of it i felt like it was my story (laughs) but it wasn't you know it was hers and i helped them tell it but i think at the end after all of it, after how hard it was and there was crying involved and everything else. But at the end, you know, the, the client looked at me and said, you know, thank you for letting me tell my story. Win or lose. And this and and we won, by the way. We won the case. <laughs> yes. But that, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the win because before the decision was announced, you know, the the thank you was for letting me tell my story. And that really felt triumphant at the time and I think in retrospect taught me a lot about the importance of letting people say their truth and be heard and to feel like someone is fighting for them ultimately it's important to be fighting for the people who oftentimes don't have someone fighting for them
0: Such a splendid advocate you are, Julie. Such a splendid advocate. I felt your triumph, and I needed that today. Really, I did. So thank you. Julie Stewart, thank you so much for making time to be on my humble little podcast here. I'm more than just grateful. Um, I'm honored. And if I may say so, the American people should feel honored to have you representing them. I've always been inspired by you, but this conversation forces me to double down on that inspiration. You're a fighter, you're a truth seeker, you achieved your dream job, and that makes me so happy. And it has been such a pleasure to reconnect with you, and to hear about your work. Thanks, Julie.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: So that's Julie Stewart, my friends. And if she doesn't completely restore your faith in the American criminal justice system, you got to admit that she restored a little bit of your faith in humanity. She's something, isn't she? I'm as impressed by her now As I was 15, 20 years ago when she was the lead prosecutor in a mock trial I had in my sociology class. Alright, so subscribe and leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you and you have the means to give a few, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com backslash studs. Most importantly, please stay safe, stay sane, stay healthy, and try to be good to each other. I'll catch you on the next episode.